I'm Andrew McAllister from The Next Big Thing. Today we're chatting with Noah, who's the co-founder and CEO of Nomad Goods, a Santa Barbara-based luxury accessories company. We chat about how they prioritize the task to outsource versus keep in-house, and how they've built lasting relationships with their suppliers. Let's get into it. So for the people who don't know the Nomad brand or have never heard about you, how would you describe Nomad to them? Nomad, uh, we build tools for the modern Nomad. And when you think about the modern Nomad, well, your traditional Nomad maybe has a bow and arrow and your modern Nomad has an iPhone. So we keep you charged and protected for life on the go. One of the things always kind of stood out to me was how close your relationships were with your suppliers. And it seemed like you dedicate a lot of time to going and visiting them and spending time with them. Is that still something you do? And like, what's your process to get new suppliers onboarded? Yeah, our staying, being close, sort of boots on the ground has always been part of our strategy. And particularly in the developing of those relations and in the earlier days ourselves of coming into this space very green and needing to learn a lot and kind of go to school. One of the best ways to go to school is to literally go there. We started manufacturing in California originally and we went pretty much camped out in Anaheim in Orange County. And um, it's funny because they do a lot of, in the US, you do a lot of medical and military. So it was like medical supplies, military goggles, and the USB cable that these guys think is super important. And they say, um, they say the speed, cost, and quality, pick two of the three. If you're, if you're not getting two of the three, then, then you need to go elsewhere. And we were not quite finding that we were getting uh, two of the three. So we started sourcing a component from China and we found that they were super fast and the quality was there. And it just, it worked for us. Uh, you know, there, it's not to say that something, some things are for certainly better made here for whatever reason and some stuff better made there. For consumer electronics, it's uh, Southeast Asia is just where the concentration of that is. That's where the cluster is. So we went to China in early 2013, first time we had ever been there. Um, and we, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. We, we really embraced it. We, uh, we got cowboy boots and we just showed up and we thought it was kind of funny, you know, uh, as, as you know, we're not really cowboys, but in a way, in a way we were for our own kind of going West or go, I guess going to the far East. Um, and they were all casual wearing t-shirts and probably secretly laughing at us, but we were just having a good time. And the point is we were breaking bread. We were getting down, getting our hands dirty, going with machines, Working Didn't on it. you we, go to one of their weddings? Did I? Did, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, we did. So the um, we took nearly the whole Nomad team this past year to um, to the wedding of the son of one of the factories that we worked uh, really closely with, and that was a really cool experience for the broader Nomad team because you know most of them haven't been. We've grown a lot, so they haven't had these. Kind of formative experiences that we had of, of getting so deep and 
we had a tour bus and we got to be those obnoxious tourists that are in a tour bus and going around and you know stopping it at a gas station buying all the funny snacks and and um if you ever sort of point your fingers at those people when they're coming around your town we got to be those people and it was just so valuable for everyone because we're a hands-on company and it's so cool for people to meet face to face and, and being in a people to be in a meeting and talk face to face is is just an incredible thing for building trust and at the end of the day you know business is about people and relations and 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 if you can build those have an opportunity to do something like that it's going to pay dividends and 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 it's a great experience for everybody. I've I've loved China and I've learned a lot there. Uh, Brian, a co-founder of Nomad, has spent a lot of time over there and really loved and gone deep there. And I think it's something where uh, it's been a big part of our story, uh, this sort of partnership that with manufacturers. So it's been great for everyone to have the opportunity to to see some of that. So you mentioned kind of partnerships there, and on top of like going deep on manufacturers you always kind of seem to leverage tools and other resources and outsource it, um, the stuff you didn't need to do in-house. Is that something you still do? And how do you decide, you know, hey, this is our bread and butter, we're gonna keep it in-house versus, hey, let's just outsource this and let other experts take care of it? Yeah, we've, so being a hands-on company, we get our hands dirty with everything. And one of the things you realize is there's things that you are good at for whatever reason and things that you're less good at or rather that other people are really good at. And where we are good, we tend to do more of. And I'll tell you a funny one is we've always been good at shipping. It's just a funny thing from when we had to fulfill our Kickstarter orders to um, having a warehouse here in Santa Barbara now filled with pallets of medical goods and, and We've just been good at shipping. I think we're a hands-on company. And so we've always done a lot of shipping. We've outsourced it to 3PLs and then brought it back in-house because we're like, we don't like how they do it. They're, it's not, they're not fast enough. They're not efficient enough. So there's areas that we excel in that we kind of will be stronger at. And then you look at design and product development. We've always been strong on that too, but we've also leaned a lot on outside design development to help us there because that's the type of thing we're getting that outside perspective or getting those experts that maybe we're not going to be hiring in-house full-time when you're a small team you can't hire six different types of designer engineer and so forth so working with a team or a firm getting other creative ideas and stuff has allowed us to take the best of what we have blend it with the best of what they have lean on them where need be lean on us people ask us sometimes well who developed that one who developed this one it's like each product has its own story Maybe some of it is more internal. Maybe some of it involves external people. Maybe something involves a, a customer suggesting something. There's, there's a, there, so, so that's been somewhat of a hybrid. And then you look at our accounting. We have a guy who's super on top of accounting stuff internally now. But as, 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 um, as you know, our earlier days, it was never an area where we're strong. I'm not strong there. It's the type of thing you have to do. And, and obviously it's incredibly important to the business to be financially run well. And so we, we now work with a firm who works with our in-house director of finance. So we lean heavily on them. And the funny thing is they even have a firm that they work with, one of the big global accounting firms for when we get into weird international complex things. So we're leaning on them, they're leaning on people. We're 
not shy to, you know, to get help from the outside. I used to do a lot of our legal stuff internally, and that is a freaking headache. And, and you know, we, we're, when and where we can and when and where we can afford it, we are more than happy to, to lean on external lawyers. And we really should, right? Because that's the type of thing you shouldn't really be doing yourself. So it's a blend and it depends. But one thing I'll tell you is by doing some of, by doing a little bit of these disciplines yourself, you learn a heck of a lot about them and it allows you to get more out of partnerships, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's legal, whether it's finance, whether it's design. When you don't know anything about it and you hand it off, man, we worked with a marketing firm one time and they just blew through a lot of money really fast and we had to come in and say, hold on, let us tell you what works because you get this... Uh, feeling that they're the pros, they're wearing cool clothing and they look kind of smart and talk the talk and use these terms that you don't know. And you realize I might not know the terms, but I know a thing or two about this. So then we told them our tricks and secrets and tips that were working. They implemented all that and the numbers got way better. And then we're like, why are we paying them when we should be doing this? So you now fast forward a couple of years later, we took all the marketing stuff in house and we've learned so much about it. We will also then lean on outside marketing firms to help us from time to time. If it's an area where we want them to work on that, we want them to run that, we want their ideas and efficiencies there. So we'll, we'll go both ways. We'll switch it up. We'll take something in-house and then get bored with it, take it out of house, do, do, different, do different things. And we, we, it keeps us nimble. It keeps us, I think, constantly having a bit of flux and change keeps you on your game. Now, if there's an area where you're particularly good at, maybe you do hone that in a bit more. And there's an area where you're particularly weak, you know, maybe you do rely more. But even to the extent you're relying on a third party, how involved are you? For example, we don't manufacture, we work with contract manufacturers, but we can go over there and visit and get hands in and on and be close with them and figure these things out. And then by doing that, we learn enough that we can come back and be operating from here, but we've internalized so much that we have a way of working together where we can work with them remotely now in a way that I don't think we could have ever just done from zero. Sometimes we talk to people who have never been to visit their suppliers and I'm wondering like, wow, how are you, how are you doing that? You know, that's weird. And then sometimes maybe those companies don't last too long and it's like, yep. Okay, they uh, get, get the, get, know enough in this space to be able to speak their language and call bullshit when you have to, but then know them well enough to build trust and when they're saying something different to you, okay, maybe you go with them. Um, and you know, using you know, the third parties to solve problems is always a great solution for it. Like, what, what do you think are the biggest challenges that you guys are facing in the business right now outside of the obvious, hey, COVID is in the world? Yeah, well, um, we definitely like to look at challenges as opportunities. And we've looked at COVID as how can we grow through this you know, a few months in on that, you're like, whoa, okay. Sometimes challenges are straight up challenges. And we've, we've been, uh, we, we've, you know, had to deal with that. Um, a challenge is, uh, you know, growing up as a company, I'd say, you know, um, we, uh, you know, we're a bigger team now. We're 30 people. We've got to put in new processes, new systems. And how do we stay true to who we are and our core DNA, but also maybe a take on some of the corporate things here there there's a reason that some companies do certain things and there's a reason that patterns emerge in successful businesses that are around for the longer haul so how do we grow in a way where we can scale ourselves yet stay true to ourselves 
And that's something that is a bit of a, a, a constant process. And we've, you know, and then, and then of course you plop COVID on top of that. And we were just getting, I feel like we were just getting the hang of certain things. We were honing in on different financials and margins and this and that. And then it's like this bomb exploded, which, you know, takes us back to our other DNA, which is being super scrappy and just getting by. So, so um, it's a forcing function. You know, if you can survive through this, it probably gives you great confidence that you can survive through most things. That, that is, that is true. And it's got going through a big storm and it's not necessarily the funnest thing, but you know, if you make it through that, you're kind of the, 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 the stronger for it, at least, at least, you know, what, what wherewithal you have in you and it's been it's actually been a great thing for the team because um it's you people have joined at different periods and you can imagine for someone who's joined it more of a more of a high well they get to experience the storm together and they get to see how we respond as a team to challenges and it's become a large team building thing we don't need to do any offsite this year you know it's uh the whole the whole the whole challenge has been COVID is the modern world's uh, team offsite, I suppose. Uh, you were mentioned you're kind of outsourcing marketing to a team there. I suppose this is a question every e-commerce company will have: is what do you guys see as your most effective user acquisition channels? And have you tested any user acquisition channels that were just complete flops in the past? Yeah. So great question. Um, and you know, to the extent that we outsource, we we make we do many we do many things internally or manage it internally. And our our marketing director has a lot of hats that he wears. And sometimes um, there's things that we're particularly good at that we'll just choose to do. And there's other times where we'll when I mentioned outsourcing that earlier, I was referring to helping on some of the ads management with whether that be Facebook or uh, Google kind of uh, SEM type of stuff. And um, we happen to be working with some, some great partners who we've had them work on one part and then we take it back in house and then they work on the other part and it, you know, we'll shift it up. So we, people sometimes ask, what do we do marketing wise? And they think that there's one secret trick and there have been times, there are times very early where we had some huge success with Facebook and it was like total wild west of just relatively easy acquisition it was before everyone was doing it you know um and over time it became okay yeah we do facebook we do this we even had a week where we were killing it on twitter they like sent us these awards because we had such high engagement and then we could never get twitter to work again so we try everything um we try it all pretty much if we believe in it i sometimes get really excited about something like i was recently excited about uh this certain like affiliate I'm trying to remember what it was this there's there's these different programs that we'll get excited about and think oh it could go really big and we try it out we give it a try and you know what we'll do if it doesn't work we'll retry it later we're not afraid you know there's that expression i like that don't scar on the first cut the point is you know maybe something works one day maybe it doesn't and so we we the short of it is we do a little bit of everything so social media paid social media unpaid um you know influencers press press has always been an important thing if you're making genuinely cool products get them out to genuinely cool people and writers and influencers and tastemakers and, and and let them review them and if it's great stuff then then they're gonna they're gonna write it up 
but we, we do it all. If I were to list it out, there'd be 10 different things. You know, do we do social media? Yes. Do we do like, have we tried advertising on LinkedIn? Yes. Is it working hugely right now? Not, not really, but um, we still maintain active account and meet postings on LinkedIn. And for all we know, maybe a year from now, we could have a big program going on LinkedIn or something. So we, we, we try a little bit of everything and sometimes things work better than others. And when they do, we'll lean in hard to it. But then what you can have happen is all of a sudden, maybe that dries up a little bit. So um, being comfortable, we're being a real multidisciplinary, uh, multi-capable sort of team and approach is, is, is key because then you look at our toolkit from a marketing standpoint, we can do it all. You think of, you think if you're like a, a, if you're going fishing, you know, and you just have one lure, it's like, okay, good luck catching that one type of fish, but you pull out all sorts of different lures and contraptions and this and that, all these different things, we're going to catch something. And we're going to also move around and find where those fish are. We're going to, you know, and I guess better than fishing, I'd like to think of it as also as cultivating, right? One of the most powerful marketing things you can do is with your own customers is building and growing your own customer base for the longer haul and taking care of them, effective customer communication and just treatment and service is, is a hugely important part of, of marketing, so to speak. And uh, so, so that's a really important thing. We really genuinely do it all. If someone were to say, what's the special ingredient? You know, it's like, it's like a really good mole sauce with a hundred ingredients. It's like, it's not any one thing that's making it all. There's a lot and it's hard to know exactly. The sum is greater than the parts. Yeah. You were, or a minute ago, you mentioned uh, about, hey, if you're making a really good product, get it out and actually get people to, to hold it and touch it and feel it. You operate in a space where there is a shit ton of competition and there's a lot of crap merchandise out there. How do you go about ensuring that you guys are seen as the leader and kind of differentiating yourself from the rest, let's just call it? Through genuine new product development, you know, even if we're doing a cable, we're not buying a cable and putting our name on it. We're thinking about the metals, the plastics, everything about it. Um, you know, to different degrees on different products, but by, by, by really taking it on from the ground up, we know that we're able to differentiate. And I'll tell you, people have a part of their brain that just spot, that, that blocks out things that look like something else. And it's an efficiency of how we've developed and evolved is we grew patterns of things together and things that are different stand out and when you do something that's genuinely new and custom it catches people's attention because they haven't seen that thing before so by nature of it being unique in yours it's going to stand out and i'll tell you in this world it's a lot of people trying to slap a label on something and to those people i say good luck you better be damn good at marketing because that's going to be how you differentiate when we can come out with a cool product, we can still hopefully be pretty good at marketing, but hopefully we got a good thing to work with. And that's not to say that you can't be successful in that. It just means that you need to recognize what is it that you're doing? What are you selling? Maybe you're selling a story more than a product. Maybe you're selling a blend. That's of these exactly things. it. 
it's a story as well because it, from a visual perspective, if you see your cable, it looks entirely different than the standard cable. But then the follow-up after that first three-second visual impact is why does it look different? Like why are they doing that folding in a different way or using a different material? And I think you've got to have that story behind it. It's like, hey, the reason we do this is because you abuse your cables. It gets twisted, they fall apart. The way we do it, it's better because of X, Y, and Z. You've got to have that story to build it out and for them to really build trust in your products. Absolutely. And so that's where, where, that's where I think some of the website and the materials take it to, uh, take it to life. I mean, you take something like our UPC and this is a podcast, so people aren't gonna be able to see this, but I'm gonna show you that is our UPC on one of our products. Okay. You can see. I'm going to describe describe this. So the, the the barcode is obviously vertical stripes, but then surrounding the barcode is a tent, and that then merges into two people around a campfire. It's a yep. piece of art. It's beautiful. And this is machine readable, so you can scan that, and it that scans. So that's what we would call a touch point. And I think that you know those are things that are fun and bring things to life now is this an innovative cool new electronic product no this is just a barcode but i think what this shows you is that you there is room in what you're doing to the extent that someone is maybe even imagine selling a commodity product well what's the experience maybe you know sometimes like what what's the goal what are they going after well sometimes a commodity product they're more just going to go after a lower price they never really efficient operation that's fine or maybe they're in a competitive space and they have more room to really focus on the delivery and the experience uh, side of things. So you can see from the nomad level, because we do develop our products internally, we do, we do a little bit of everything where a little bit of, you know, product development stuff, which is a big, big part of it. And then, you know, brand experience, customer experience, all these different things. So, so for us, it's a real blend of these things, but wherever you are in this, this value chain and proposition, you can differentiate and develop yourself and find touch points areas to, to get in there. You know, we started doing um, sticker packs. So when, when someone gets a order from us, they get a little sticker pack and then has a little story in there and has these stickers. And just like any product, we made the first one and then V2, V3, and like we're probably on V3 or four right now. But the point is like, like having those little extra surprises for people and a way to, in, to interact with someone is is a key aspect. You know, if someone likes their little packaging thing and they receive that, maybe they keep it on their shelf at home and then they're showing their friends or there's something funny or unexpected about it. Again, you're breaking a pattern. If someone wasn't expecting it in a, in that you're giving them a positive experience, you're creating a genuine interaction. And that's that's something that people are going to remember and that where you're going to stand out. Um, and I'm sure we've all had that. I was at you know, a restaurant recently. And I think at the very end, it was a sort of, it was in like a mall cafe. It was nothing too interesting. And at the very end, there was like this unexpected little chocolate. And I was like, well, that's a nice touch. And like, it just, in my mind, they jumped up a whole star ranking, even though it's a very generic little chocolate thing. But it was well, that, that. When I see un- things like that, my thought process is, well, they're, that's a small thing. It doesn't make the product incredible where it was shitty before it's a small thing but if you care about the small things you care about the really big things so it's almost like an insurance policy 
where I can't remember if it was uh, ZZ Top or ACDC when they were touring around. They yeah. used to have this big pamphlet they'd send to um, the, uh, you know, Wembley Stadium or, you know, wherever they were playing that day. And on page 66 or something like that, they'd say, hey, it has to be brown M&Ms in the, the thing. It can't be multicolored. So when they walked in, they immediately saw, is it brown M&Ms or is it multicolored? If it's multicolored, they obviously hadn't clearly read through the entire spec for the show, which means maybe the stage wouldn't support the weight of their speakers or something. It's a quick insight into what else could be going on with the product. That's, that's exactly what our UPC is, because I'll tell you, it wasn't the first thing that we started working on. You know, and if it was, it, these are the types of finishing touches where it shows they probably did a good job on the cable braid, you know, mm -hmm. or on the, the connectivity and all these different things, because those are the things that you would do first. And those are the polishing touches. So I just think that there's so many um, ways to engage and interact and to, so don't, you know, it's important to not get complacent with your own selves, you know, to keep on going with the same energy that got you going to begin with just that you never stop. There's, there's never, we're always a little bit uncomfortable with our products. I mean, we, well, when we launch them, we're all excited. I mean, new, new site, we get all excited. And then of course, we always look back months later, like, I can't believe that was our website, you know, but, but it's like this constant process of reflection and improvement. And I think that for companies that are successful, they're generally, whatever their product or services, they're, they're constantly, they're, they're never fully happy. It's good to celebrate and have a launch party and, 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 and appreciate the work that you've done, but you don't want to get too comfortable. And I think you should never be fully happy. You should always be wanting to improve. <laughs> uh, so unlike other companies we speak with, you guys have taken a bit of a different approach in that you aren't trying to be 100% direct to consumer. Talk to me a little bit about how you balance the wholesale versus direct to consumer portion of the business because each side has pros and cons to it. Yeah, they, they, they do. And um, we started direct to consumer, obviously, with, uh, on Kickstarter in 2012, which is about as pure direct to consumer you can go considering you're selling something to people that you haven't even fully finished yet and you're not sure if it's even going to work out and they're kind of investing their hard-earned dollars in you and i'm incredibly grateful to the kickstarter backers that we had and um you know now we have these these customers all over the world but when you look at the the, the breakdown there margins are going to be better overall direct consumer that's just you know, you're getting a bigger slice of that sort of sales pie. You know, there are associated costs, but the, the reach could be smaller because you have your audience and then to the extent that you can grow and expand that audience. And you often find in online marketing that you get some good acquisition at first, but it sort of falls off how far you can, you can get and starts to get more expensive and more difficult. So how big can you get your pie? Well, with offline retail, you've got other people who are going to kind of market you into their customer bases, whether it's through a larger US uh, retailer like Best Buy or where we've had a lot of success with smaller international ones. So they'll take us into their often tightly curated customer bases and do a great job pushing us in throughout that. And maybe that's going to help us develop some of those customers and they'll come to us internally, which could be pretty cool. So, um, so it allows us to 
grow our customer base through the help of, of other players. And, you know, if you were to think about it, someone, if someone was going to come and go market you into their group, and then you're going to grow some customers from that, that's a net win, even if on the per sale margin basis, it's going to be a lot lower at first. We got to be thinking long-term. And if you're developing a brand, it's all about long-term and long-term you know, awareness and customer bases. Maybe someone sees you in a store somewhere and they buy you in a different store or they buy it on your website. It, the, the, the acquisition process can be a long journey itself. So to the extent that you can get help from retailers to do that, it, it can be valuable if it, if it works for you. I, I think of some of our partners there. We have a very close partner in Norway. We have a close partner in Austria. We have a close partner in China. I mean, would we be able to have the sales that we had developing our brand in China without the help of that partner? No, uh, we wouldn't. That, you know, and that's a kind of extreme example given the cultural and sort of financial legal barriers there. But you look at other markets like Brazil and Russia that maybe are difficult to even ship to from the US. Now, on, on the flip side, like, you know, we, we are happy to ship to customers all over the world, direct to consumer to the, to the extent that we can. So a word that many people will use is, is omni-channel, where we are doing back to the marketing discussion. We're doing it. We're doing it a little bit of it all. We're doing direct to consumer U.S., direct to consumer international, you know, some retail U.S., retail international. That doesn't mean we have to do everything. We don't need to be in every major retailer. We don't need to be in every small one. We don't, we don't. We, we can pick and choose what works for us, where do, do, do they have the right, you know, do they have a customer cohort and group that, that aligns with who we are? And are they helping us reach our goal? Is our goal to sell, you know, to, to, to sell to nomads all over the world? Are we able to hit them all ourselves? Well, if not, would we then need partners to help us in that mission? It's, now, it's important to get down to your metrics to understand, make sure you're doing things that that works so you're not too overextended um, and to be walking before you're sprinting. And we certainly have taken that approach. We did direct to consumer for uh, two or two, three, two or so years before we got in any retail. But, you know, at, at that time when we got into retail, we got into Best Buy and we, you know, we had some huge, huge orders that really allowed us to grow as a company. And they even helped us develop different product concepts that we may not have otherwise done. So, both sides of the business in that regard have helped us grow in different ways. And I'll throw one more curveball in there as we now have the Amazons of the world, which is what we may call B to B to C, right? You're sort of selling to a biz through a business to a customer. And that's been another channel that has actually so like seller central or vendor central in that analogy. Well, that would be um, seller central um, because you're kind of selling direct to the consumer, but through the business. Um, whereas they're on still the not your customer; they're Amazon's customer. Yeah, it's it's sort of like a hybrid because you do like sh you can like ship to them. You get their shipping information. It's sort of like a halfway there. When you do the vendor model, you do have a lot less visibility because you're um, you're selling to Amazon; they sell it for you. Um, we found Amazon to be challenging. It's been tough. It can be a mess with the way all the listings go and people throwing stuff on there. And, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been challenging and we haven't had the sales growth in Amazon 
in the same success that we've had online and with some of our sort of retail channels. Um, that that doesn't mean we're not shaking it up and stuff. And again, I think COVID has has thrown a big uh, a big wrench into the into all these gears. So we we'll want to make sure that we're that we're looking into things again to make sure that we're relevant with with the changing times you know so i have two more questions for the end of the interview and it's questions i ask everyone uh, but i think it's really interesting to see how they answer them differently question number one what are the kind of main tools that you guys use to keep the business running day to day and i suppose that's similar to the question i asked before which is what are you outsourcing but specifically like what tools should other e-com entrepreneurs or fiscal goods entrepreneurs be using or would you recommend to them? We're, the, we're very heavy on Airtable. Airtable has been a powerful tool that we found so many different uses for. Um, and that's been a, uh, it's a really powerful tool. Shopify has been an incredible platform for us. We've been on Shopify since 2012 and it's funny because we work with so many different SaaSes and everyone is always claiming they're launching their new product or service or thing. And it's just a few months away. Shopify fricking delivers. Um, so they've been, it's been fun to, to, to see all the tools and upgrades and they've always done it at, you know, a reasonable pricing. Um, hope they're not listening to this. You know, don't want them to, to, to raise the prices, but they, they've been an incredibly powerful, platform there's simple tools that i've found helpful i've always liked the crm street just integrated right into your gmail and it's just you know you don't have to go out and use this whole third-party system and uh yeah uh ship station has historically been a really powerful shipping tool and uh um skubana is a is a tool that that has been growing more uh for us more recently over the past couple of years and it's become a quite a powerful kind of order shipping management tool um so tools are key we have been uh we have always been like tool hungry and it's been one of the fun things about uh this all has been like the tool shopping and we've had great experiences with some of the stuff i just mentioned we've had Things I don't even I won't name the ones that haven't stood up to what they were meant to be, but we've had we have a whole closet full of of dead sass that just is not not what it was promised to be. Um, uh, QuickBooks has been a powerful financial tool. They're one of you know they're QuickBooks Online. They're they're one of the big big industry softwares you know from Intuit. Um, but when you get down to the finances you do need to have a really powerful thing. We, we tried a different one before from a much smaller uh, outfit and it was supposed to be able to do all of our accounting stuff and it just really didn't, didn't add, stack up. But the problem is when you got your finances and taxes and this and that, you can't, like you got, you got to nail it. So we've had, that, that's one of the larger, larger ones that's been helpful in that regard yeah with especially the tax stuff with qbo quickbooks online there are such a large community of tax and accounting professionals that know how to use a product inside and out 
it just gives you a lot more functionality than say you were using a brand new tool. It might be the best tool in the world, but if there's not CPAs out there that know how to use it, I don't know how useful it is. Um, okay, Very final question. On the, on the financial software specifically, and, and that's, that's definitely a huge part of the equation on that one. Mm -hmm. um, so final question, and it's a bit of an extension on the one before is, what advice would you give other e-com entrepreneurs or e-com entrepreneurs just starting out? Like, what should they be focused on? What should they just forget about and not worry about? Get your hands dirty. Get, get in there. You don't have to be a coder to test out these tools and to get dirty and to learn about them. And try to go direct on different things to get the direct experience. Um, if you, you know, we talked about earlier how we will work with firms and stuff. You've got, you, in order to get to work with them, you need to also know a bit what you're doing first internally. So then that allows you to, to work with externals where, where need be. But get your hands dirty, try a lot of different things, experiment. You know, we've had some successes, some of our biggest successes ever was through um, questioning things, experimenting with things. In the very early days, we were watching a lot of these Netflix on CDs while we were packaging stuff. And it, in the insight was like, okay, how, do they ship these CDs for $9 a month, you know, these DVDs? And so we looked into that and saw, well, if it's under a quarter of an inch and under, uh, you know, an ounce or whatever it was, you can ship domestically for 49 cents and internationally for $1.09. So we were able to really hack the shipping system because of like getting our hands dirty, looking into things and questioning how other things work and kind of, kind of digging in. So, uh, and that is an, within that there's another little nugget is shipping it's a big part of whatever you're doing is going to be shipping so when i say like figure out shipping because that can make or break you because everyone has these ideas of like we're going to build a charge card or we're going to build a new sparkling water beverage or this or that whatever you do if it's a physical product i can tell you you're going to be shipping so you're becoming a shipper and i alluded to this earlier when i mentioned that we do a lot of shipping you're probably going to do a lot of shipping. So no matter how cool your product is and this and that, you got to embrace, if you embrace shipping, that's a huge part of your expenses and program and operation and customer experience and all these different things. So there's a lot of potential in, in something that's, that's as boring as shipping. So um, don't get afraid to look at your line items of expenses. And if they're big, get your hands dirty with them, you know? I'm Andrew McAllister and we've been chatting with Noah from Nomad Goods. If you want to get the transcript of this interview, head to blog.kickpay.com. That's blog, B-L-O-G, dot kickpay, K-I-C-K-P-A-Y, dot com.